With Malcolm Guyte thinking about Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, some of our music this morning does just that, thinks about Psalm 23. For example, here's Cliff Richard with a hymn based on the psalm, The King of Love My Shepherd Is. Shepherd is whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his and he is mine forever. Where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he tells the story of Lieutenant Colonel Arno Beltram with reflections from his widow, Marielle Beltram. Arno gave his life after taking the place of hostage. In the middle of the talk, the choir of King's College, Cambridge, sings Ola Yelo's setting of Ubi Caritas. Where there is charity and love, God is. On the 24th of March, 2018... Lieutenant Colonel Arno Beltram lost his life saving someone else's. Not on the battlefield, but in a terrorist attack in a French supermarket. Colonel Arno Beltram, au nom de la République française, nous vous faisons commandeur de la Légion d'honneur. 
In a national ceremony at the Invalides in Paris a few days later, President Macron said, to accept to die so the innocent can live, that is the essence of what it means to be a soldier. Others, even many who are brave, would have wavered or hesitated. When a radio interviewer asked Arno's mother if she was proud of him, she said he would have told her, I'm doing my job, mum, that's all. On his father's side, Arno Beltram had a military grandfather and a great-grandfather who had made a profound impression on him as a child. He used to play commando and was interested in all things to do with the army. As he grew up, he naturally felt a calling to serve in the forces and to serve France. Arno graduated in 1999 from France's leading military academy in Saint-Cyr. He was deployed to Iraq in 2005 and was later awarded the cross for military valour. On his return to France, he joined the country's Republican Guard and was tasked with protecting the presidential palace. Arnaud's widow, Marielle, explains what it meant to him. Being a gendarme wasn't just his job, it was the very essence of who he was. He had a great reverence for the gendarmerie. No matter how big or small the mission, he always gave it 100%. He trained hard and set ambitious goals for himself and others. In 2017, he became the third most senior officer of the Gendarmerie Nationale in the Aude region of southern France, home to the medieval town of Carcassonne. His passion and drive was contagious. As one of his friends put it, Arno was a leader that you enjoyed following, even if it meant hard work. Arno liked people to surpass themselves. One of his great talents in my eyes was his ability to unite people and fill them with the same enthusiasm to achieve a common goal. This was evident in preparing for anti-terrorist training at the end of 2017. He organized his team, acknowledged their skills and empowered them to take ownership of the project for themselves. His motivation for what he was doing was infectious. Arno was motivated by the love of his job, which gave him a deep sense of belonging and the love of his country and its people. But he also had a sense of the sacred. This wasn't just about a faith in God. He was born in Etampes, a town about 30 miles south of Paris. He was baptised as a baby, but his family weren't practising Catholics, and his upbringing wasn't particularly religious. He considered himself to be an atheist until he was around 25 years old. From an early age, he loved Brittany, and was drawn to its Celtic legends. He loved Celtic music. A particular favourite of his was the Canadian musician Lorena McKennett. By the time he was in his 30s, he was searching for an understanding of the mysteries of life, the things we can't see beyond the physical world. He was in a sincere quest in the search of truth. This took him in several directions, but gradually he centered in on the Catholic faith. He received the Sacrament of Confirmation at the age of 36 and often liked to spend a few days or weeks at the Cistercian Abbey of Timiduk in Brittany. Faith became a meaningful part of his life, and he wanted to bear witness to it. In the summer of 2015, Arno prayed to Our Lady in the Basilica of St. Anne d'Oré to help him meet the woman of his life. 
He also went on a pilgrimage to Italy with that petition in mind. He met Marielle soon after, in the autumn of that year. Since they initially lived more than 500 miles apart, they often spent weekends in the mountains where they enjoyed hiking together. This gave us the opportunity to discuss many things, to get to know each other better and spend time with each other surrounded by nature. Arnaud was very aware of the possible pitfalls of married life. He was very keen to prepare for it in the right way. They took part in several weekends for engaged couples at La Grasse Abbey in the south of France. They married in a civil ceremony in 2016 with a sacramental church wedding planned for June 2018. I was very touched by Arnaud's loyalty to his friends and by his great ability to forgive. There was a time when one of his best friends wouldn't speak to him for several months. Arnaud didn't know why. It was very clear to him from his friend's text that he wasn't in a good place, but he was also quite rude to Arnaud. Despite this, Arnaud gave him space and after some time, he contacted his friend again. He found out that his friend's wife had left him and as a result, he had got into a difficult financial situation. Arnaud reassured him of his friendship and lent him a sizable amount of money. Immediately afterwards, Arnaud described him as his best friend again. This kind of situation made me tell Arnaud that he was a great man. Three people have been killed by a gunman who took hostages at a supermarket in southern France. Prosecutors said the man had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State group. He was shot dead after killing two people at the shop in the town of Trebes. It's thought other shoppers managed to escape. Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram was shot as police burst in and killed the gunman. This policeman, a lieutenant colonel in the gendarmerie, had offered himself as a hostage in a swap with someone else that the gunman was holding. Mr. Beltram had been left fighting for his life. The officer had kept his mobile phone on during the incident so that colleagues outside the building could listen in. 
When they heard the shooting, they began the operation that ended the siege, killing the attacker in the process. Father Jean-Baptiste of La Grasse Abbey, who had helped them with their marriage preparation, came to the hospital at around nine o'clock in the evening to give Arnaud the sacrament of the sick. Arnaud died of his injuries in hospital in the early hours of the following morning. One day, I was waiting in line in a queue in a self-service restaurant. I reflected on what it meant to be prepared to risk your life for no one in particular. It could have been the person waiting in front of me or behind me, a total stranger. Even if this was an expectation of Arno's job and he would have hoped for a positive outcome, he made the decision without hesitation, putting the safety of the hostage first. His supreme devotion to his duty made headlines across the world. It was the Friday before Holy Week, and many priests mentioned Arno in their sermons that week. Greater love hath no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, was how the ambassador described it yesterday, quoting from St John's Gospel. For many millions of Christians, the cross is the offer of love in exchange for hate, whatever the cost, whatever it takes. And that's why the cross is the central image of Christianity. It's the pivot on which the Christian narrative turns, a representation of love, absolutely not a celebration of death even though death is sometimes the cost of love. And then he took the cross divine Where the sun shines fair So in my view, yes, Arno Beltran was a hero of selfless commitment to other people and witness to the courage and love that is exemplified by the cross. May he rest in peace and rise in glory. The past three years have been a time of great struggle. I have come to realize how much I depend on God and on the support and prayers of others to go on. I also have come to realize how God's promises provide a way through deep waters. The love I experience from God and from Arno helps me, as from a spring source, little by little, to pass on that love to others again. This is a source of joy for me. Paying tribute to Arno, Father Jean-Baptiste said, He was convinced that an ideology could not be fought simply with weapons and computers. It can be durably defeated only with spiritual convictions. The Catholic faith that he rediscovered, the Christian wonders of French history that inspired him, are the best shield against the murderous convictions that kill and wish to kill again. Father Dominic Ars, national chaplain of the Gendarmerie, added, The fact is, he did not hide his faith. He radiated it. He bore witness to his faith to the very end. As a gendarme and as a Christian, Arnaud had a deep sense of duty, of persevering to the end without looking back, of serving and protecting people, and of giving people hope. He loved encouraging young people who were wondering about their future to think about joining the gendarmerie or the armed forces, 
thereby putting their lives at the service of something bigger than themselves. He wished to pass this on to our children when the time came. Arno's legacy has to do with inspiring and passing on his values, as, for example, to a young father who asked himself after Arno's death how he could be more generous and give more of himself in everyday life to his wife and children. These outcomes provide a hint of how the tragedy of the 23rd of March can stay in the minds of people as a source of light rather than simply as a terrible event. He loved chatting to anyone and everyone he happened to meet about all kinds of things and he would very often offer his help where he could. You could say it's just like him to reach and engage with so many people after his death. I'm sure he continues to offer a guiding hand to those who ask him, whether they are on their own spiritual quest, searching for truth, or going through tough times, as sometimes he did himself, or whether they are seeking the ability to forgive or the desire to serve. Arno continues to invite people to hope. Lieutenant Colonel Beltram's self-sacrifice was introduced by Lucy Winkett. She's a minister of St James's Church, Piccadilly. We continue the theme of self-sacrifice with Catherine Scott singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's to the tune Whaley Whaley. Uh, the Water is Wide is one of the songs that goes to that. But this is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey
Joanne Hogg with Stuart Townend's song based on Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd. The Lord's my Malcolm Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 23. It's followed by the 16 under Harry Christopher's, singing William Bird's Laudibus in Sanctis. A response to Psalm 23. To suffer my own dereliction for me, to be my shepherd, and to lead me through the grave and gate of death, in strength and mercy, Christ has come down. 
At last I found the true shepherd, and the false just fade away before him. I will sing of how he drew me from the snares I set myself, how day dawned on my darkness, how he brought me forth, converted me and opened up the way for me, and led me gently on that path, led me beside still waters, promised me that he'd be with me all my days on earth, and when my last day comes, accompany and comfort me as evening shadows fall, and draw me into his eternity. Gates meditation was followed by the 16 singing William Byrd's Laudibus in Sanctis. Now we're not leaving Psalm 23 just yet. Here's class with the metrical psalm sung to the tune The Rowan Tree. Thank you. 
Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today she's got a story for us about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. In August of the year 1173, work began on what would become one of the most famous towers in the world. A freestanding eight-storey bell tower for the Cathedral of the City of Pisa. The tower was to be 180 feet tall, there was just going to be one little problem. The builders were going to quickly discover that the soil was much softer on one side of the building than they had anticipated, and the foundation was far too shallow to adequately hold the structure. And sure enough, before long, this whole structure began to tilt. And it continued to tilt until finally the architect and the builders realised that nothing could be done to make the Leaning Tower of Pisa straight again. Construction was halted for almost a century, mainly because the city of Pisa was continually involved in wars. But slowly over the years, the building continued, and it was done in three main stages. And during that time, many things were done to try and compensate for this tilt. The foundation was shored up. The upper levels were even built at an angle to try and make the top look as if it was straight. But nothing worked. The tower was finally completed in 1374, almost 200 years after it was first begun. And it stood at an angle for over 835 years. Today, it leans almost 18 feet away from where it should be. That would be 10 degrees from the vertical for the engineers amongst us. And one day experts say it will actually fall, all because it wasn't built on the right foundation. Jesus, as a carpenter, knew all about having the right foundation. The parable that we heard earlier of the wise and the foolish builders comes at the conclusion of what most people consider to be the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is filled with theological gems, the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, seek first the kingdom of God, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. And that's just a few. But the sermon ends with an illustration, a simple but profound story of two men who each built a house. And the story begs each of us to ask this question of ourselves. What kind of foundation are we building on? For you see, Jesus wasn't talking about building a literal house. He was really talking about building a life. Building a life that is meaningful. A life worth living. Now as I said, Jesus was a carpenter. He knew a lot about building. But he also knew a lot about human nature. He knew how easy it is to hear things, to listen to them, to agree with them, and then go out and do not one thing about them. And so he told his story to show the necessity of doing as well as hearing. He was highlighting the fact that it's not good enough to know. It's not good enough to agree. What you hear, you must use. You must put into action 
and make it part of the foundation of the life that you build. The first thing that Jesus is saying to us in this parable is that we are all builders. Every one of us is building a house. And it's a lifetime job. Building a house of personality and character. Everything we do, every word we speak, every thought we have goes into the structure. We are building a life. And in the parable, Jesus said that some are building wisely and some are building foolishly. And there's a further fact that this parable makes clear. Not only does everyone build their own house, everyone must live in the house that they build. Everyone must live with themselves. It's said that the one person that you cannot run away from is yourself, and we all know that to be true. All of us are builders. All of us live in the house we build. And here's something else this parable makes clear, that every house someday will be tested by the storm. Now, the people that Jesus was talk- were talking to were often witnesses to sudden downpours during the re- rainy season in ancient Palestine. Dry riverbeds, you see, would suddenly turn into quickly violent torrents in just a few moments of time after a cloudburst. According to Jesus' story, when you combine these torrential rains and raging streams with substandard housing that often included dried mud in the building material, and all of this sat on a shifting foundation such as sand, then you have disaster on your hands. Now, as insightful as that is, Jesus is not actually teaching a parable about how to build houses in safe areas. There are no storm-free zones, as we've all seen over the past month or so. This is a parable about the foundation for life, not about avoiding the weather or what it throws at us. What Jesus was saying is that when the pressure intensifies from all angles, the outcome is determined by the foundation we're sitting on. Jesus was saying that when the storms of life hit, it's good to know that you have got the best foundations available. Jesus expected the people to be smart about life, to be careful about the priorities that they built their lives on, to be cautious about who they listened to and what philosophy of life they chose to live by, because a wrong decision in these foundational areas would prove to be their undoing when the pressures and forces of life began to mount. The storms of life will miss none. No life will be immune from the storm. Or to use Jesus' illustration, the storm beats on every house. Mary Haddon, the importance of having firm foundations to withstand the, withstand the inevitable storms of life. Here's Twilla Paris with How Firm a Foundation, and we'll follow that with Elvis, a song which starts when the storms of life are raging. Its title is Stand By Me. for your 
When I'm growing 
name I know. There's within my heart a melody Jesus whispers sweet and low Fear not I am with thee Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow Though sometimes he leads the waters deep Trials fall across the way Though sometimes the path seems rough and steep See his footprints all the way Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Sweetest name Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name. 